time to the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Today, Lord willing, we will look at the rest of this prophecy, picking up in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, and reading to the end of chapter 4. That looks like a lot to handle, but you'll notice that as we go through, there is a consistent theme. Uh, The Lord is dealing with people in his covenant community who assume that he pays no attention to the arrogant and to the evildoer. And the Lord will directly answer those claims by pointing to the great and awful day of the Lord that is to come. And so we'll see this uh, in Malachi, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, reading to the end of chapter 4. Uh, Just a heads up that uh, next week we will have a guest preacher as I'll be away on vacation, staycation. Uh, I'll be around but not here. Uh, Thankfully, the the Lord has uh, arranged uh, that I'll get to be a part of uh, a commission to install Matt Owens uh, in a new position as the pastor of the uh, Seven Hills Presbyterian Church in Somerville, Mass., so I will miss being with you. Uh, Solomon Kim will be with us next week. And uh, following that, for the rest of the summer, we will continue looking at other Old Testament minor prophets. We're going to to switch in two weeks from Malachi to Obadiah, and then to Nahum, and then we will continue going through a few others, and we're going to take some time this summer to continue in the minor prophets. But today, Malachi chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 13, before we read this word, let us join together in prayer and seek God's blessing on our study. O Lord, we thank you that you have spoken through your prophets and through these men that you carried along by your spirit. We ask now that you would give that same Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts, to give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom this text speaks so beautifully about. Help us to look forward to his return, just as your faithful ones hearing Malachi, looked forward to his first coming. Help us, O Lord, to set our sights and our eyes on that great day of the Lord and our coming redemption then. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now as we read God's word in Malachi chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said... It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. 
You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, you are aware probably that the first rule that new drivers learn is probably also the one that they hear most often. It is repeated by all of you parents reaching for that imaginary brake pedal in the passenger side of the car. And parents, if you like, you can say it with me. Keep your eyes on the road. Simple concept. So simple that after a few decades behind the wheel, you forget all about it. It becomes second nature. You never think about it until you come over that hill on 128 doing 70 miles an hour and the guy in front of you is pumping his brakes and then... You're thankful you remembered, keep your eyes on the road. But in an airplane, that's well, another matter. Uh, in the air, of course, pilots don't have the luxury of a quick stop. And when bad weather rolls in, or fog, or clouds, they may not even have the luxury of visibility. And so one of the skills that all pilots need to learn is the ability to fly by instrument. It was James Doolittle, then a lieutenant in the Army, all the way back in 1929, who made the first flight entirely without a line of sight, a visual reference outside of his cockpit. It happened in an open-top biplane. He was in the rear seat with another pilot in the front, keeping his hands off of the controls so everyone would know that he wasn't interfering. James Doolittle sitting in the back under a specially constructed hood so he couldn't see out of this cockpit. And he was the first man to take off, set a course, and land his craft without being able to see outside of where he was sitting. At the time, it was a marvel of engineering and daring. And today, it's how it happens. It's just a commonplace. And so every commercial craft you get into is fitted with enough panels and gauges and radar screens so that even if your pilot couldn't see beyond the windscreen, they can still get you to that exceedingly long layover in Charlotte right on time. But one of the tricks to flying by instrument is learning to trust the panel. So what seems counterintuitive for a driver has to become second nature for a pilot. To fly well, to fly safely, you have to trust what the instruments are telling you more than what your eyes can see. It is a spiritual skill that God's people also have to learn. As we navigate uh, through the world that God has placed us in, we are often tempted to keep our eyes on the road to look and see what is around us, to evaluate what's good and what's safe and what's dangerous based on what we can see. And so we do that by comparing ourselves with one another. We do that by referencing our values to the standards that the world has already set. We do that by measuring our trials by the comforts that our culture says we should expect out of this life. 
And when those storm clouds inevitably roll in, we can become frightened that we can't see more than a few feet in front of us. But this is not how God's people are supposed to live. Here at the close of Malachi, God is speaking again to his people, and the message is that you need to learn to fly by instrument. Keep your eyes uh, not on the things that you can see, but on what God has told you. Keep your ears open to his promises. Keep your hope in what he has said he will do. Keep looking for the day that righteousness will be revealed, because you may not be able to see it yet, but it's coming. The dawn is rising, and the, the great day is coming, and so the Lord is telling his people to trust him more than what they can see. Now, when we look to our text, the first thing I believe we need to focus on is God himself. Specifically, the fact that our God is a God who hears. That's the first point today, the God who hears. Now, this final dispute, we've seen several of them in Malachi, this last disagreement between God and his people begins the same way that all of the other ones have. The Lord points out some sin that is spreading like an infection in the blood of his people. It's spreading to every organ and system and is contaminating everything it touches. He says to them, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, and in return, as they have before, the people claim ignorance. What are you talking about? How have we spoken against you, they say? It could be, I think, that the people are genuinely unaware of what they had said. Maybe there is a real ignorance here. Could be that the words God is now quoting back to them were statements that they had made thoughtlessly. The heat of passion, the heat of frustration without, without thinking about them much. It could be that perhaps they left the temple for the umpteenth time thinking that because of the, the external rituals, because of the sacrifices they had gone through, that by now their external circumstances ought to have been different. And they leave from their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they go back to the family farm and they find the same limping poverty that was there when they left. Maybe in their frustration, maybe without even thinking that they meant it, they raise their hands to the air and say, what's the use? What's the profit of keeping God's charge? They say, what do we get? from mourning over our sin and dedicating our lives and our offerings to this God who seems to be so disconnected uh, from where we are in our everyday life. That's the charge that they're making to the Lord. The charge is, shouldn't we be getting more out of this arrangement? Don't we deserve better for this? And maybe they were words that were just spoken thoughtlessly. Maybe they had genuinely forgotten that they'd ever spoken a word against the Lord. Not that ignorance would make things better, by the way. In fact, it might actually make things worse. You know what it is to, to have that conversation where somebody says something to you so cutting, so sharp, so angry in your direction that the memory of, the memory of that conversation is burned into your mind. You remember exactly where you were standing when they said it. You can still hear the spiteful tone of their voice. You remember word for word every phrase that rolled off their tongue. And it gnaws at you. And you can't get over it. And you can't forget what they said. And it gnaws at you until you finally have to go to them and you confront them. And you say, you said this to me. And not only are they surprised that you had a problem with it, but they don't even remember that interaction. 
Does it make it easier to know that they think so little of you that they can say those things and it makes no impression whatsoever? Well, it could be that this is what the Lord is confronting. It could be that the people thought so little of the Lord that they took his name upon their lips lightly. It could be that they didn't even notice when they spoke blasphemies against him. But I think that the context here shows us that the issue is much deeper than that. Notice what the Lord is dealing with here. The whole context of this passage is showing us that the people spoke these words not because they didn't think about them. They spoke these words because they thought they could get away with them. The charge that they're making against God is that God is not paying attention. He doesn't hear what they have to say anyway, so why does it matter what they say about him. If God was paying attention, things would have been different by now. If God could see what the wicked were doing, they wouldn't be getting away with all of their sins. If God could hear the prayers of the righteous, then maybe their families wouldn't be suffering. If God was aware of what was happening in the world, surely by now he would come and shake things up. Because he hadn't, at least because he hadn't in the way that they expected, they felt justified in turning God's justice upside down. So now they say, we call the arrogant blessed. That must be what God likes. That must be the things that please him. Evildoers prosper. The wicked escape God's justice. And they fell into the trap that Isaiah warned us about in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are shrewd in their own sight. In other words, they're evaluating the Lord by what they can see. And they think that he must not be paying attention. Then again, if God really is disconnected, then none of those things matter much at all. Light and darkness, arrogance and evil, what's the difference if God is not paying attention? So the problem with their words was not that they were spoken without thinking, but that they were spoken without thinking that God was listening. And that means that it's not a small thing when the Lord shows up and he says, I hear the things that you're saying about me. He hears the words they've spoken against him. He is not deaf as they thought he was deaf. He has not stopped noticing humanity plodding through this daily struggle for faith or disbelief. And what a fearful thing it is to realize that God hears every word that is spoken against him. Verse 13, God says that, uh, that their words were hard against the Lord. It could also be translated that their words have overruled the Lord. It's every television show, courtroom drama you've ever seen. Right? And, and the defense is making their point, and the prosecution jumps in, objection, Your Honor. Seeking to overturn what's being said. It's competing opinions, and God is saying, Your words are hard against me. You're trying to raise an objection against the way that I am working in the world. You're trying to overrule me in my ways, and the Lord is letting them know that He has heard every false word they've spoken against Him. But he's also have heard every word of faith 
spoken by those who trust him. Verse 16, it says that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. It's an amazing glimpse into the heavenly counsel of God and the the notice that he takes of his people. They're not even speaking to him. They're speaking to one another. They're encouraging one another in the Lord. And the Lord says, I hear it. I notice it. I write it down and I remember it. Do you remember in Esther how Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus? And so his name was written down so that later he could be brought out and he could be honored as one who was found faithful. It's the same idea here. That the Lord heard and and it was written down. We're not told exactly what the people said, but we're told that God listened. We're told that the Lord marked down the conversations they have with one another. He remembers their words of encouragement in the faith. It means that the Lord takes note of that card that you sent. That fellow believer who is racked with sickness and pain and some days they can't even get out of bed, but you encourage them to faith in the Lord in the midst of their trials and God heard it and he remembered it and he marked it down. It means that he knows about every time that you pray with that parent whose child has left the church. It means that he has a record of every time you spoke to a struggling saint, every time you told them not to give up, not to lose hope, not to forget that God can be trusted. Isn't it astounding when you think about it that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God the Father says, I will remember their sins no more. There are some things that God covenants to forget. He will not bring them back into remembrance. He will not hold them against his people. And yet the same God who promises to forget our failures also remembers and takes note of the faith of his people. It is a direct answer to the claims that are spoken in verse 14. Yahweh's critics had something to say. They said, what's the use? What is the profit of serving God? What do we get out of the deal? But when the Lord hears the faith of his people, he says, verse 17, they will be mine. What do we get? Well, we get to become God's treasured possession. He calls us his. This is a shortened form of that covenant promise. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And the Lord enters into a covenant, and he says in Jeremiah chapter 31, I will remember their sins no more, but he does remember those who are his own. So what we encounter first in this passage is a reminder that we serve a God who hears. He hears every word spoken against him. He hears the cries of every heart struggling to cling to faith in his promises, and he keeps a book of remembrance of those who belong to him. And the question is, what does he hear when he hears you? In Malachi's day, there were some who feared God. There were some who denied him. There were some who trusted what he told them. There were others who believed what they could see. And to both groups, the Lord said that a day is coming. And that day is going to prove that he's been listening all along. 
And so once we encounter the God who hears, we have to consider the day that divides. That's our second point. The day that divides. Notice this passage, the persistent language of the day of the Lord. Verse 17, the Lord says that those who fear him will be his, and they'll be his in the day that he makes up his treasured possession. There is a day of revealing, when things will be seen. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says that those arrogant and those evildoers that they thought were getting away, well, they will be consumed, root and branch, nothing left. And it's going to happen when? In the day that is coming that will set them ablaze. God says that when his righteous go out, they'll leap with joy and the wicked shall be as ashes under their feet. And it will happen when? On the day when I act, says the Lord. There is a day coming when the Lord will no longer hold back his justice on the wicked. There's a day coming when he will no longer allow his righteous ones to be terrorized and oppressed in places where they're often terrorized and oppressed like Kuwait and Sudan and Qatar and Afghanistan and any number of other places. There is a day coming when the Lord will demonstrate in full view of all creation his love for his saints and his wrath upon iniquity. And in that day, says the Lord, it will be a day that divides. The day of the Lord is familiar to us by now. We've seen this. We saw it in Joel. We see it all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament. The people of old were looking forward to the same day that the people of the church age are looking forward to now. It is a thread, a theme that ties together all of God's redemptive history with his people, all the word that he's given to his church. And within that theme of the day of the Lord, there are several prevailing pictures that might come to mind when you think about what that day will be like. You think perhaps of a day of judgment. That's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord comes to destroy sinners from the earth. So when you think of the day of the Lord, you think of judgment. Or you think of the day of the Lord and you think of triumph, of victory. You imagine Christ as the rider on the white horse from Revelation 19, the one who comes faithful and true, riding on the clouds, and the the trumpet of victory is sounded, and his people are gathered. You think of the day of the Lord, and you think of judgment, you think of victory, or with many of the minor prophets, you think of a day of darkness and gloom and deep anguish. But just as often when the day of the Lord appears in Scripture, it is the day, as it is here in Malachi, of the great division of the peoples of the earth. That's how Christ described it. And so he spoke of the wheat and the tares. He spoke of the sheep and the goats. He told the parable about all the fish being gathered in the same net and then being divided out as the will of the Father decides. And through Malachi, the Lord of Scripture says, verse 18, then once more, that is on that day, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The day of the Lord is a day that divides. It's another answer to the claims that the unbelievers are making about God. It's all the same, they said. Arrogant or or evildoer, servant or skeptic, there's no difference, they said. There's no benefit to serving God. There's no punishment in denying him because God's not paying attention to any of it. It all amounts to the same thing. 
This was the temptation that almost grabbed a hold of Asaph. Remember Psalm 73. Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, writes Asaph, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a problem that God's people encounter throughout every age of history. What do you think about the people who scoff at God and all of his laws and the fact that he is a holy and a righteous judge and they seem to be just fine? Where is the justice they wanted to know? Earlier in Malachi, where is the God of justice? They were dealing with the same issue. Then Asaph was dealing with that issue. And then for the rest of that psalm, it's practically a chronicle of many of the earthly blessings that so often fall to those who do not trust in the Lord in this life. Asaph says it seems like they're getting ahead. Pride is their necklace, he says. Violence is their garment, yet they strut. They scoff. Their hearts overflow with follies. Behold, these are the wicked, he says, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then Asaph writes something that could have come straight out of the mouths of Malachi's generation. Psalm 73, verse 13. All in vain, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What's the use, he was saying? What's the profit of serving God? Of keeping his charge when it looks like God isn't paying attention. But if you remember that psalm, you remember that it was written by someone who learned to trust God's answer. Asaph says his feet almost slipped. He says that his feet almost stumbled. Here is Asaph falling from the sky, this dramatic nosedive, and it continues until the Lord grabs the controls and pulls back and takes Asaph's eyes off of the horizon that he can see and puts it back on the promises that he's given to direct his life. So Asaph learned the same answer, Psalm 73, verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It's the same answer that God gave through Malachi. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. It's true that in many ways that distinction is hard to see from where we stand right now. Believers and unbelievers live in your neighborhood. You all pay the same taxes. You all have your little hobbies. You all drive similar cars. You all cut your grass when it gets too high. And as you walk up and down your street, it is hard, unless somebody puts a sign outside, they have a Bible verse somewhere in their house, it's hard to discern, well, I bet a believer lives there, I bet an unbeliever lives there. Sometimes the distinction is hard to see because our lives look so similar, both for good and for ill. Christians and non-Christians both have children who get sick. Christians and non-Christians both lose their jobs when the economy tanks. Christians and non-Christians both feel pain when a loved one is taken from them. 
And there are differences, often unseen differences, often uh, under the surface we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We lose our jobs, but we were never working for man's approval in the first place. There are differences, and we know that if we know our own hearts. But from where we stand, often those differences are unseen. And if we look at this life, if we evaluate the world only with our eyes, we will sometimes be tempted to think that there is no distinction. That God treats the righteous the same as he treats the wicked. Oh, but then we remember their end. Then we consider the day that divides that God is speaking of here. And the skeptic says that the arrogant are blessed. That the evildoers escape and God says the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. And the picture here is probably of an iron smelting furnace. It was built in the shape of something like a beehive, and they didn't have coke or coal in those days, and so they would put as much wood and fuel as they could, and they would fan the flames, and it would shoot out of the top of the furnace 10, 20 feet in the air. It was the hottest thing that anybody in the ancient world could imagine. And God says on that day it will burn like a furnace, and the evildoers will be like stubble. What chance does stubble have? the remnants of the field. Even when the field catches on fire, even when there's a brush fire, sometimes there's a hope of new life because the roots under the ground can spring up later. God says no. Root and branch, completely consumed. Then we consider their end. And the Lord says you'll see the distinction. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And the question is, will you take him at his word? hard to see the distinction in this life. Your neighbors, your unbelieving neighbors, look the same as you do. They have joys and sorrows and hopes and fears and trials just the way that you do. And sometimes it looks like God is paying more attention to them and doing better things for them than he might be for you. And the question is, will you take him at his word? Will you walk by faith or will you walk by sight? Will you trust your senses or will you heed God's warning? Well, there is a God who hears. And there's a day that divides. And praise the Lord that by his mercy there is also a son who heals. Verse 2. Read it with me. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now at this point, if, if we were inclined to, we could trace out why the older interpretation has fallen out of favor in the main line today. We could discuss the influence of modern critical scholarship. We could talk about how for the last 200 years the theologians and the exegetes don't want to go anywhere near anything that even smells remotely like borrowing from the pagan nations with their sun gods and their sky worship. And if that's the sort of thing that gets you going, I have some very boring books that you can borrow later. For the rest of us, we might as well just cut to the chase and admit that the King James gets it right. Pronouns are important, and the King James uses the masculine in verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. It's fallen out of favor 
It doesn't mean it's wrong. And Calvin puts it very succinctly. He says, there is no doubt but that Malachi calls Jesus Christ the Son of Righteousness. Here we are, and the Hebrew Scriptures are, are grinding to a close. The last prophetic voice is calling for faith in the Lord on the precipice of 400 years of intertestamental silence. Those who fear the Lord are waiting and hoping and trusting in His coming redemption. How fitting then that in the last verses of the last chapter of the last writing prophet, God gives a spoiler of what's coming in the next chapter. The true light, writes John, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. The son of righteousness, let's call him. How fitting that when John the Baptist was born and the spirit and the power of Elijah to be the forerunner before Jesus Christ, how fitting that his father Zechariah opens his mouth for the first time in nine months to quote the words of Malachi. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 76. And you, child, speaking of John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. How fitting that when Jesus begins his earthly ministry in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 2 begins to quote the prophets. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the land and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He is the son of righteousness. He's the one in whom there is no sin the one in whom there is no darkness, the one in whom there is no distrust of his Father. And when Jesus came into the world, he came as the first fruits. He came as the guarantee and the foretaste of the final victory that will belong to God's remnant when the great and awesome day of the Lord finally comes. And that means we need to pay much closer attention to the language that's used in this passage concerning God's people on that day. We've seen already that the day is a day of division. It's a day of burning or refining. A day of judgment or salvation. But it is categorically not a day of payment given for services rendered. That is the mistake that the critics had of the Lord. What profit is there? What do we get out of it? We're giving all of these things. What is God giving to us? Don't we deserve a little bit more for everything that we have done for the Lord? But on the day of the Lord, when he makes up his treasured possession, there's no talk of getting what we deserve. Praise the Lord, there's talk of something far better. Notice the vocabulary. Notice that God says that on that day, his people will be spared. That's what you do with uh, prisoners of war who don't deserve to be spared. On that day, they will be healed. Not praised for how healthy they are, but taken and, and fixed and healed and put back together the way they should have been. He says that they will leap for joy and tread down the wicked. 
but not because we're the ones who are vanquishing the wicked, but because God has already acted on that day. He is the one who is victorious. He is the one who has triumphed. And by his grace, all his people will receive the blessing of the joy of celebrating him. This is in no way a picture of wages that we earn by our service. This is a picture of the gift that God gives to people who don't deserve it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Dear believer, when you think of that day, do you consider the love that makes you a child of God? Do you consider the sacrifice that secures our victory? Do you put your hope in the Son of Righteousness who heals us and forgives us and reconciles us to himself through his death and resurrection? And when you think of that great day of the Lord, do you say to yourself, it's not what I deserve. By God's grace, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm longing for. If that's your hope, then receive again the message. There's a God who hears. He pays attention. He remembers. He takes his people as his own. Only don't trust in, in what your eyes can see, but in what he promises about that day. On the day of the Lord, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. On the day of the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. And on the day of the Lord, our blessing will appear when Christ returns in glory. He is the Son of Righteousness. And the light is already dawning on those who trust Him. You may not be able to see it now. But the Lord is telling us to fix our eyes on that final dawn, that final rising. And trust in him, not what our eyes can see. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would give faith to your people. Oh Lord, it's your doing. It's a gift of your Holy Spirit to gather us to yourself, to save us by grace through faith and not of our own doing. Oh Lord, thank you for the works and the victory of Jesus Christ. Help us to look to him and long for him and trust in you for that day. Oh, Lord, fortify us against critical spirit that would speak against you. Keep us, Lord, wrestling with you in faithful prayer. Keep us clinging to you and we don't understand the way forward. Hold us by the hand and lead us by Christ. And give us eyes of faith to see him and to wait and to long for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.